Yeah, now you guys, seriously, that's why, in part, why we did. So, speaking of questions and answers, what's something that you don't think people take seriously enough? What's something that you don't think people take seriously enough? Ben. Sin. Sin. That's a great one. In God's providence, we were talking about that earlier today, and I'd already written this question to be asked. What is something that people don't take seriously enough? Sienna. A lot of people just say they take things seriously, but really they're just doing it because the world is. And so, I don't know. The world really doesn't take things seriously nowadays, in my opinion. So not much. Yeah. People don't take maybe life seriously enough. Yeah. That's certainly true. Kaylee? Authority. People don't take authority seriously enough. Uh, yeah. Whether you're not listening to your parents, listening to the police... Legitimate authority. Speed limits. Speed limits. That's a good one. Uh, Janae? Loving others. People don't take loving others seriously enough. Yeah. Uh, how does that evidence, how does that show itself? Um, maybe, like, maybe they don't realize, like, how Yeah, actions speak louder than words, yeah. and a love for one person doesn't mean you love all your neighbors. Yeah. Well, one thing that Leviticus teaches us is that you and I probably don't take holiness seriously enough. One thing Leviticus teaches us is that you and I probably don't take holiness seriously enough. So tonight, we've come to Leviticus, a book of the Bible that's kind of famous for ending Bible reading plans early. Many people make it through Genesis, which starts with God's miraculous creation. You have the fall. Then the story after story of God choosing people and rescuing people through his providence, saving a people. There's wonder and tension and drama. It's exciting and fascinating to read. And it's also just awe-inspiring and worshipful to read through Genesis. Then you get to Exodus. And the drama just kind of ramps up. God rescues a people from slavery, through plagues, through the Passover, through the blood of the Lamb, through the Red Sea. They literally make movies out of this stuff. It's exciting stuff. And then what did we learn about in the second half of Exodus last week? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. God giving of the Ten Commandments, the law. This is another like high point in redemptive history, in the history of the world. So God gives the law, the Ten Commandments. Does anybody remember, really, just briefly, uh, how does how do the Ten Commandments point to Jesus? Sienna? And the laws that, well, of course, we're talking about how we all disobeyed these laws, but... <coughs> I think you hit the nail on the head with your first statement. You said that we all break the law. We've all broken the Ten Commandments. 
So it points out our sin and our need for a Savior. It points out our need for Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law. So that Genesis and Exodus is exciting. Then we come to Leviticus. Leviticus, it's, it's named after the tribe of Levi. You have this chosen section of God's people who are to act as priests in the temple and the tabernacle. Levi, uh, Leviticus, it has a bunch of regulations about how this one tribe and all the people of Israel really are to live and worship God. It's line after line of instruction for sacrifices, rules about what makes people ritually clean and unclean, and what actions are holy or unholy. There's not a lot of drama. There's a little bit of drama, not a ton. The whole book actually takes place with the people camped around the base of Mount Sinai. So there's no real motion. They're just camped around Mount Sinai in the wilderness. It might seem boring and pointless, especially for us, we're not living in ancient Israel. We don't have any animals to sacrifice. Uh, we can actually kind of live however we want without fear of being stoned to death for making a mistake. So it seems kind of irrelevant to us. But that's not how the writers of the New Testament looked at Leviticus. They saw that it's actually a really, really important book for understanding who God is and how he and his people relate to one another. And it also teaches us a lot about what exactly Jesus did on the cross. Jesus himself thought that one of the most important verses in the Bible was found here in Leviticus. Jesus teaches that to love your neighbor as yourself was the second most important commandment that helps summarize all of God's law. And that's Leviticus 19.18. The whole book of Hebrews is all about this book. It's all about Leviticus. And it teaches that you can't really understand Jesus' work unless you understand Leviticus. Peter, one of Jesus' favorite disciples, appeals to Leviticus when he teaches the church how to live. Peter, what I read to you in 1 Peter at the very beginning, uh, he, later in that book, he quotes Leviticus and says to the church, not just to ancient Israel, he says to the church, to be holy, for I, God, am holy. God says that at least five times in Leviticus. So Peter's quoting Leviticus, teaching the church how to live. Leviticus is important because holiness is important. Leviticus is important because holiness is important. The New Testament actually teaches without holiness, no one can see the Lord. Holiness is so important because God is holy. Holiness is so important because God is holy. So let's look for a minute at the command, be holy, for I am holy. So really, basic observational question. This is God talking, saying, be holy, for I am holy. So what does that tell us about God? God is yes, really obvious answer. God is holy. What does it mean? What do you think it means to be holy? Blameless in your conduct. Okay, I like that. Does anyone have anything to add to that definition? If we're trying to build a definition together of what it means to be holy. Sinless. Sinless. Blameless in your conduct. Sinless. 
Anything else? What comes to mind when you think holy? George? God. That's a good thing to come to mind. Because God, like we just said, is holy. Jonah? Higher than humans. Okay. Higher, higher than authority. Higher up than in authority than humans. I think higher up in a lot of ways. Janae? To be like God. To be like God. Yeah, God's holy. If we say that a person should be holy, a person should be like God in some ways. Yeah. Set apart. For some reason, I've heard holy set apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think all of those contribute to what it means to be holy. Uh, I think really there are two sides to the coin of holiness. One is that definition, Lily, to be separate set apart, to be distinct from the world, and kind of Janae and Ben, what you guys were getting at, uh, distinct from sin, so blameless in your conduct, sinless in the sense of separating yourself from sin. But the other side of the coin might be even more important. It's to be devoted to God. So one side of the coin would be separated from sin, the other side of the coin would be devoted to God. And so... God isn't just holy because he's different from the world, like Jonah, you said, and he's separated from sin. That's true. But God was holy before the world and before the sin even existed. God is holy because he's perfectly devoted to himself. God is holy because he's perfectly devoted to himself. Within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, there is a perfect love and devotion to one another. So to be holy means to be devoted to God. Uh, in Leviticus, if you read through Leviticus, there you'll find utensils that have to be cleaned and sanctified, made holy. They're devoted to the worship of God. The priests are called to be holy. They're devoted to the work of God in the temple or the tabernacle. And the whole Israel, the nation, is commanded to be holy, to be devoted to the God who rescued them from Egypt. They're to be holy because God has adopted them. And as his adopted children, he commands that they look like their adopted father. So we're going to look at two concepts in holiness tonight. Adoption, holiness flowing from adoption, and holiness flowing from the atonement. God chose Israel out of all the nations. He rescues Israel. And he calls them to look like him. They're to represent him, to reflect him to all the nations. The reason they're to be holy is because their adopted father is holy. So if you claim to be a Christian, you claim to have God as your father, that means you'll look like God. It doesn't mean you'll look invisible or infinite or all-powerful, but you will be merciful and loving and honest. You'll be forgiving and you'll hate sin, just like God does. Those who have been saved by God will always begin to look like God. They'll always start to look holy. So you can't claim to be a Christian, on one hand, and live in unrepentant sin, an unholy life, on the other. Last week we looked at God's law like we already said. Remember, we said that the law points out our sin. But it also teaches us, like we said, like Sienna said, what kind of life God wants us to live. Someone can't claim to be a Christian and at the same time love lying, 
see nothing wrong with lying and lie all the time. And you'll never be perfectly holy in this lifetime. But a Christian will grow in holiness by the power of the Spirit. What does it look like to grow in holiness? Another word for that is sanctification. Uh, holiness, sanctification, two words that mean the exact same thing. To be holy is to be sanctified. One is English, one's more Latin. So what does it look to grow in holiness, to be sanctified? It looks like a change in mind. And so that means something in our thinking, in our understanding has to change. And that happens from reading the Bible, hearing the Bible preached. So, study the Bible. Sanctification looks like a change in heart. So, what we love will change. If what we really love and desire doesn't change, then we're not growing in holiness. It also results in a change in action, what we do. So we won't lie and maybe have violent outbursts anymore. We will go to church and forgive our brother or sister. So it's not just internal. It also shows itself in external actions. So it's a change of mind, a change in heart, a change in actions. All of these things will grow closer to what God looks like over time. Most importantly, I'm talking about holiness and sanctification. You being holy doesn't make you a Christian. It marks you as a Christian, but it doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't earn you God's adoption. If you notice and think about where we are in, in redemptive history, God adopts and saves Israel and then calls them to be holy. He doesn't wait for them to get good and holy and then say, okay, you're holy enough, I'll save you now. Now, holiness is a result of God's work in their lives. It's not a cause of it. And it can't be a cause of it because we're sinful and we're unholy people by nature. And that's what the climax of this book, Leviticus, is all about. It's about God dealing with his people's sins. The climax of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. So everyone, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. What does atonement mean? The climax is the day of atonement. Well, what does atonement mean? George, you have a thought? Saving, yes, it does have a lot to do with saving. It's like making up for something that you did wrong, like. Uh, yes, to make up for a wrong. Redemption. Redemption. It does carry all of these um, things along with it. All of these connotations. At the base of it, I wrote this on the board. If you notice. Atonement. All I did was add some dashes. And winners. At one. Meant. It's to restore a unity, a relationship oh. at one. It does have the idea of salvation, of being brought back into a right relationship, united, redeemed. The way we're summarizing the whole Bible in this series is one story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ, right? That's how we're summarizing the whole of the Bible. <laughs> This major theme of the Bible, redemption in Christ, 
atonement, being restored to a right relationship with God, is what the book of Leviticus is all about. So if you're tempted to think, why would I read Leviticus? What does it have to do with anything? It has to do with the central theme in the Bible, atonement, redemption in Christ. So what happens on the Day of Atonement? That's what atonement means. What happens on the Day of Atonement? Uh, look at verses 6 and 7. In chapter 16, look down at verses 6 and 7. Would someone read verses 6 and 7 for us? Jaya. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So Aaron, who's the high priest, he has to make atonement for himself. He has to offer a bull to make atonement for himself. Then two goats are chosen. Two different goats. What happens to the first one? Would somebody please read 15 through 17? Augie, would you read verses 15 through 17? Then you shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make the atonement for the whole place, because of uncleanliness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all of their sins, and so he shall be for this tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement for all goats, until he comes out and has made the atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. So the first goat is slaughtered for the sin of Aaron, his family, and the whole nation of Israel. What happens to the second goat? Would somebody please read 20 through 22? Would somebody read verses 20 through 22? George. And when he had, and when he has made an end of atonement, of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, their, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat. And send it away into the wilderness by, by the hand of a man who is in readiness. He, he, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to, to a remote area, and he shall let, go, let the goat go free in the wilderness. Thank you, George. Every single year, they do this. The high priest offers a sin offering for himself so that he can approach the holy place in the center of the tabernacle. Then he offers a goat to atone for the people's sins, the whole nation of Israel. Then he puts his hands on the head of, a, of, of a, the other goat, so he's symbolically transferring. He is a representative of Israel. is symbolically transferring all of the sins of Israel onto this goat. And the goat is driven away from the congregation. 
So these two goats are helping us picture this one action of atonement. This is a picture. It's kind of like a, a play that teaches us a couple things. In order for t sinful people to be near to God, to be in a relationship with him, they need to have their sins atoned for. They need to be punished, and they need the sins to be removed. Leviticus is teaching that death and the removal of sins is necessary to approach God in worship, in fellowship, to have a relationship with him. And Leviticus is also teaching, praise God, that God will accept a substitute. God will accept life for life. There's a transfer of sin of the nation to these animals. Like we said, this is a picture. The blood of bulls and goats makes Israel ritually clean so that they can approach the, the, uh, the, the temple to worship, the tabernacle to worship God. But these sacrifices don't actually solve their sin problem. If they did, they wouldn't have to do it year after year after year. Something much more is needed. And that something is provided in Christ. Leviticus points us directly to Christ, the Lamb of God, the great high priest himself, who didn't offer bulls and goats. He offered himself. He was a perfect, worthy sacrifice, fully God and fully man. His death atoned for the sins of his people. The church, just like the goat, atoned for the sins of the nation Israel. Christ's death atones for the sins of his people all of his people. And his resurrection means that God accepted his sacrifice and he now lives forever to minister as the high priest in the heavenly tabernacle seated at the right hand of God. The book of Hebrews says that because he lives forever offering his priestly sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice to God, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. You hear that? Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's Hebrews 7. That is a promise from God. If you draw near to God in Christ, he will save you forever to the uttermost. There's not a higher word that they could use to the extent God will save you. If you repent from your unholiness, from your unholy actions and desires and trust in Christ for your atoning sacrifice, you'll find him to be a perfect savior. Better than Aaron, who first had to cleanse himself. Better than a goat, who had life but no righteousness. Better than a symbol that purifies the outer per person but left the heart unchanged. Better than your own works, which cannot make up for your sin. You need Christ to be in a right relationship with God with a perfectly holy God. Leviticus is all about holiness. God's holiness. And our holiness through adoption and atonement. So let's end this lesson with three lessons from Leviticus. Three lessons from Leviticus. If you're taking notes, write these three lessons down. First, Leviticus teaches us that your whole life matters to God. Your whole life matters to God. 
The laws in Leviticus cover the whole lives of Israel, from birth to death, from what you eat to getting married. All that you do, God cares about. Every single aspect of your life. All that you do is either holy, devoted to God, or unholy and sinning against God. Even small, simple acts can be faithful, acts of faithful devotion to God. Sinful acts can never be holy. But small acts can be. But God cares about all of them. Big, small, sinful, not. God cares. You don't get sections of your life that you can do whatever you want in. We'll talk about that more, Lord willing, in small groups in a minute. So first, Leviticus teaches that your whole life matters to God. Second, you can only approach God on his terms. Leviticus teaches that you can only approach God on his terms. Not just any old sinful human can walk up to God and worship him or interact with him any old way we choose. He's the creator. He's the infinitely holy one. He's the one who gets to say, you must do this to approach me. And Leviticus is pointing us past bulls and goats to Christ. There's no approaching God in worship, in prayer, or in fellowship, except through Christ alone. So you can only approach God on his terms, and his terms are to come through Christ. Third, you, grow in, you also grow in holiness by his terms. You can only approach God on his terms, you also grow in holiness by his terms. Here's a tip for you guys. There's no secret way to grow in holiness. If you're a Christian, then there's not a special prayer to pray. There's not a a golden ticket that unlocks this flood of holiness. God's given us his word. He instructs us to pray. He's given us the church to worship him together. And he's given us the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The only way for a Christian to grow in holiness is to take advantage of these rather ordinary things that God's given us. And that can often take time. Leviticus teaches that your whole life matters to God. The only way you can approach God is on his terms. And the only way to grow in holiness is on his terms. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy. You have sent your holy son to atone for the sins of your people. And by your spirit, we grow in holiness. All who trust in your son will be found perfect, perfectly righteous in your son. All who are in your son will be found to be growing in holiness in this life. Lord, we pray that we would turn from our sin and trust in Christ. We pray that we would long for holiness that we would understand what holiness is, and that we would grow in holiness in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.